I have learned so much from studying 1 Corinthians in this series of sermons. These texts provide an opportunity for drawing out real, familiar application for our local congregations that we don't often hear preached or discussed from the pulpit. We need to take the opportunity God's Word gives us to raise these issues. It is challenging to expose and bring to light things in our local church that we need to correct, but this is a needed work if we are to be God's witnesses who do God's will as revealed in God's Word. Today's message turns to focus on God's ministers. We ask this question, how would you describe the role of a minister? What expectations do you have for him? How is a minister held accountable? Prepare for your expectations to be challenged by God's word. As the apostle explains that a minister is a servant, a steward, a spectacle, and a spiritual father who represents Christ. This message is preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as part of a preaching series through 1 Corinthians to the church. It is given this title, Be Imitators of Me. Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus, and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. The Word of God says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, would you give us eyes that we might see, ears that we might hear, and hearts to obey your word we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. I want us to think this morning about this question. How would you define the role of a minister, a pastor, clergy, a person set apart for the Lord's work? Is a minister a CEO? A chief executive officer of the church? Is a minister a nurse? One who is present for every cough and fever and ailment? Is a minister a chaplain? One who cares for a sick and dying flock? Is a minister a leader? One who organizes and mobilizes the living for growth and mission? How would you describe a minister? 
And what expectations do you have for that minister? I searched online and found a blog post by a Dr. Raymond C. Osborne. I don't know who he is. I'm not recommending his blog, but I found this post on his blog, and it was titled, The Perfect Pastor. And this is what it said. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $400 a week, wears expensive clothing, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $300 a week to the church. I like this one. He is 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. That's the perfect pastor. And then there's this one. Above all, he's handsome. He also knows when somebody is sick and needs visitation, even without anyone telling him about it. He loves to spend time with his family, and the perfect pastor has no problem with you dropping in unexpectedly. And he also spends most of his time in preparation to speak God's word on top of everything else. He remembers everyone's birth date and, of course, their anniversary dates as well. The perfect pastor eats nutritiously, gets his rest, exercises daily, and is always there to listen to you night or day. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with children and youth, but he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in the office to be handy when needed. He spends all day each Saturday preparing the Sunday sermon, and he focuses on his family, too. He also doesn't overburden the church finances, so he holds down a full-time secular job as well. The perfect pastor is always in the next church over. And then he concludes the article, if you've ever seen these type of things going around. He says, now, if your pastor does not measure up simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too, then bundle up your pastor and send them to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. Have faith in this letter. One church broke the chain and got its old pastor back in less than three months. Many of these comments are funny because they really are the types of things that we each expect out of a pastor or a minister. They're not very far off from the truth. Each one of us has our own individual expectations of, of what a minister should be and do, but what does God say a minister is and what does God say a minister should do? If we choose a minister like we choose our entertainment, we'll quickly be divided into different camps. This isn't a problem so much if you're a Baptist church, for you can just take your groove and split off and 
form another Baptist church and call a pastor of your liking. The point is this. We have a tendency to want a minister to imitate us rather than for us to imitate the minister of God as God defines a minister. We want our own private, controllable priests. I've seen plenty of job descriptions over the years for pastors that churches have created and sent over. And the reality is, if you took a marker and you crossed out every expectation that is not found in the scriptures, it would look a lot like those government forms we see that are just redacted all over. It's a practical modern example of how this plays out. So few of the expectations placed on a minister are truly God's expectations on that minister. In chapter three of 1 Corinthians, we learn that ignorance in the church was one reason for these things playing out in Corinth and for the divisions that had played out in Corinth. The church in Corinth did not know how to be godly people. They did not know how God's church is served or how God's church is built. And most of all, they did not know that God's spirit dwelled in them as a body. The saints had not purged jealousy and strife from their midst and because of their sin, they were incapable of growing beyond infanthood, the scriptures tell us, onto maturity in Christ. They were quarreling, chapter one tells us. They were following each their own preferred minister. And the result was a divided church that lost her witness for Christ in the world because she was too content acting and behaving like the world that she didn't look any different from. Now, in chapter four, the apostle, the special messenger of Jesus Christ to his church, concludes this section that is dealt with division before moving on to address further problems by turning our view upon himself and on his co-laborers as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he answers this one question. How should one regard a minister of the gospel? How should a person consider a minister? How should one think about a minister? In other words, what is a minister and what does a minister do? You see, at its core, the division in the Corinthian church centered around how the church members thought about the various ministers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ, and the various ministries. And the apostle is going to get to the bottom of this issue and answer it once and for all, not according to the wisdom of the world, but according to the word of the cross of Christ. I will remind us all that this letter is written to the church in Corinth, but it is also written to us as well. And we should prayerfully consider if we have a problem of division among us like this, or if we have expectations that are not biblical for our ministers that might lead to a problem like this. And at the very least, we should be aware and informed about this 
so that we might be on guard, lest complacency set in over time and we find ourselves just as easily divided as the church in Corinth was. Verse 1 begins with this statement. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how one should regard us. So the apostle is giving instructions to the church on how they should rightly view ministers. First, ministers are servants and stewards. We've seen the word servants already in chapter 3, verse 5, where the broader word for deacons is used, diakonoi. That does not mean that these men hold the office of deacon, but that they do what deacons do, as we all should, and serve the Lord and his church. But here in chapter 4, a different word for servants is used. The word in verse 1 is the word hupiritas. Hupiritas. And for our purposes, the meaning is the same. But the apostle is employing a variety of words to communicate the same point, that as ministers, we are servants, helpers. In this case, the word huperitas would highlight their position as subordinate to another, meaning a minister is never at the top of the chart. A minister is never the highest rung on the corporate ladder. A true minister of God is not someone who boasts in himself or elevates himself or makes much of himself. A true minister of God is a servant subordinated to another. And notice the text. Who is that minister subordinated to? Who is that minister a servant of? This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. Here is one example of a mistake that churches make today in this regard to illustrate. Do we not convince ourselves somehow that the minister exists to serve a specific church and is subservient to that church? We often structure ourselves to support that view. It would be as if I am called by Southside Baptist Church to be a servant of Southside Baptist Church, serving at the pleasure of the congregation or the personnel committee or the stewardship committee or the deacons. You need to know that I don't view it that way, and God does not view his ministers that way, and I know some of you don't either. I went and I checked my ordination certificate. I wanted to see if this was true. I keep this in my office upstairs. And I checked it out. It said, certificate of ordination. We, the undersigned upon recommendation, da, 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 which had full and sufficient opportunity for judging the God-given gifts. And after satisfactory examination by us in regard to the Christian experience, called to the ministry and views of Bible doctrine, hereby certify that Christopher Campbell was solemnly and publicly set apart and ordained, not to a specific church, but to the work of the gospel ministry. 
that gets it right at what the text is saying. Servants, not of a specific group, but of Christ. And so it is. I am a servant of Christ. Southside Baptist Church, I am not called as a minister by you, and I don't work for you. I work for Christ. I serve Christ. I take my orders from him. And both of us are better off because of it. And both of us are better off embracing that and not hindering it. Because a true minister of God, according to the scriptures, is a servant of none other than Christ. And not only a servant of Christ, but also stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice the text does not say servants or stewards. It says servants and stewards, both. Some ministers mistakenly think that they are servants only and not stewards. Others think that they are stewards only and not servants. But a minister of God is called to be both. That word steward implies that we have received something to steward. We have been given something that was not ours, but is ours to manage. And what is it that we have been given? The text answers by saying, the mysteries of God. That word mysteries has appeared before in 1 Corinthians, and it always refers to something that you will never find if you seek it out in the world. It's only something that has been revealed. The mysteries of God are revelations that come from God. We steward God's revelation, which is God's word. You have that too. In the word steward in the Greek, it's oikonomos. You hear that word economy? Oikonomos, which means the manager of an oikos, a house, the manager of a household. Whose household does a minister manage? God's household. Who is God's household? God's church. Look at verse 16 of chapter three, if you wanna look back just a little bit. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Remember that that was not talking about individuals there in chapter three. That was talking about the church body. The same apostle Paul in the book of Acts said this to the elders of the church in Ephesus among his last words to them. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Who does the church belong to? God. Who pays careful attention to the flock? The overseers. Pastors are overseers. Who makes a person an overseer? The Holy Spirit of God does. Not a church, not an ordination council, but the Holy Spirit of the living God. Let me give you one more scripture. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and a section right before the qualifications of deacons. This is in the qualifications for such 
overseers. And listen to what God's expectation says. First Timothy chapter three, verse four. Of an overseer, he must manage his own household well. That's speaking of his own family, all those under his own roof. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The root for the word household is the same root in the word stewards. A minister called by God, if he doesn't manage his own household well, goes on to say, how then can he manage the household of God? And so a minister called by God is set apart by God and is responsible for managing God's household, God's church. And this includes the work of administration. Sometimes People want to help me take some administrative duties off of my plate. And there are some administrative duties that can come off my plate, but not all of them. I am one man incapable of meeting the ministry demands of a whole congregation. The biblical pattern is that the qualified, God-called minister administrates and oversees the household and in so doing equips the saints for the work of ministry. It's Ephesians chapter four. Why is it so essential that a person administrating God's household is held to such high standards because he's managing what belongs to God? The scripture makes this very clear and he's accountable directly to God. Unfortunately, many pastors are not interested or skilled in administration, and some wrongly view administration as something that's anti-spiritual. And so they farm out the administration of the church to committees of people in the church, some of whom clearly don't qualify scripturally. And what that pastor is doing, who farms out God's expectations to others, is that he is abdicating his God-given responsibilities and putting his dear flock in great peril by placing them, if unqualified, into a position that was accountable to God, to their peril, a position that was not given them by God. If you dig in deep, for example, to the committee structure, prescribed even in our own church governance. We have prescribed committees, and those committees vote, and the pastor doesn't get a vote. He's a non-voting member that can be even excluded by a chairman from the meeting if that meeting pertains to him. What this means is, effectively, our church is structured on paper in direct contradiction to God's accountable design so that the God-given authority to administrate has been watered down to a mere lip service for the man of God that is accountable to God for that very work. That's a scary thing. And thankfully, we have not been operating like that in recent days, but we need to get our operating documents corrected. There may be a good reason for setting things up the way that they are, but at the end of the day, it's not God's way. I don't know about you, 
But we've seen already in 1 Corinthians that doing things a human way leads to destruction. I, for one, will opt for God's way every time. If we do things God's way, then when problems arise, watch this. They're God's problems, not ours. And God knows how to handle problems. Do not hear what I'm saying and think that a minister is not at all accountable, however. Look at verse two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is why a list of qualifications are given for overseers in 1 Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one. People may aspire to this office, but they must first be tested and found faithful. When the first deacons were prayerfully chosen in Acts chapter six, men were chosen, the scriptures tell us, that were full of faith and the Holy Spirit. They were men that were found faithful. You may ask, well, how do you judge a minister then? Well, listen to how the apostle responds, verse three. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The minister is always being judged. We all know this. Did he come visit me enough in the hospital? Did he preach an entertaining sermon? Is he making decisions fast enough? Is he making the right decisions? But given all of the judging, the apostle says, that's a small thing to be judged by you. Southside Baptist Church, it is a small, small thing for me to be judged by you. It's also a small thing to be judged by myself. And I don't mind telling you that no one is more critical of me than I am of myself. I will promise you that. And I wish I was like the Apostle Paul who said, I do not even judge myself because I judge myself often and harshly. And I need to work on that. But this is a gospel message that I need to hear as a minister of Christ. It is the Lord who judges me. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I do not even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. Are you concerned about how to judge a minister of God? That judgment is not for you. It is for the Lord. And the Lord, hear me, protects his church. But if we insist on doing church our way, then it is not his church and God won't get involved. But if we are obedient to being God's witnesses who do God's will as revealed in God's word, God's way, then we show that we are God's church and God protects his church. Let God be judge. Verse five, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation or his praise from God. In other words, wait on the Lord. You cannot know the purposes of someone's heart. 
I cannot know the purposes of someone's heart. But God does, and God will bring those purposes to light when the Lord comes. Already, the apostle is setting up a theme that he will touch on at the end of this chapter. For he himself will come to Corinth and find out the power behind their talking. Here he is saying, Jesus will come. And in that day that Jesus comes, Jesus will find out the power behind the talk. And his judgment is just and perfect and righteous and final. Wait on the Lord. A minister of God is an example of this. Look at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Do not go beyond what is written. Make God's word your foundation and do not go beyond it. No one has a special revelation of God that has not already been revealed in his word. Ministers are merely fellow workers serving the same God. But it is God who owns the field. It is God who owns the building. And a true minister of God is a minister of the word. And the word is what people see that matters most. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Underline that word receive as often as you see it. Receive, receive. That's the key word. Everything that we have, we have received from God. Everything a minister has, has been received from God. John the Baptist said it this way, John chapter 3 verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see his posture before the Lord who gives all good gifts. We cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven, unless God gives it to us. So in Corinth, they were boasting about things as if those things were of their own working as if they had things that God did not give to them. And the apostle says, God gave you everything. You received everything. Don't boast as if you have what you have because you gave it to yourself. You did not. You have what you have because you have received it from God. Boast in the Lord. How should one regard a minister? As servants of Christ and stewards, but also as a spectacle. Now the apostle uses a bit of irony here. Look at verse eight. Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. They boast as if they have it all figured out and have all success without the help of the apostles. And the apostle says, I wish it were so, so that we could share the rule with you. 
but it is not so. That's why the apostle says it the way that he does. They are divided and deceived because of their sin. One commentator says it this way. The Corinthians misjudge the situation between the present and the goal. There intervenes the second coming and the judgment, which they in their spiritual self-assurance believe they have behind them. Yes, they do reign as kings in Christ, but not yet in the way that they think. Yes, they have become rich, but not yet in the way that they think. Yes, all things are theirs, but not yet in the way that they think. These things will come to fulfillment in the right time, in the end time, but not in this time, not yet. Christ will come again first. Judgment will take place first, and none of us will escape a judgment. The Corinthians think that they are living now in the fulfillment of what is yet to come, and they're wrong. And the apostle, again, serves as an example of this. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. That word spectacle is the word theatron. Theatron, where we get our word theater. We're a theater, Paul says. The apostles are first in God's list, but not in the world's. In the world, they are a theater to angels and men, a spectacle, meaning God has placed the apostles and ministers of the gospel as people who are to be seen and who are watched and who are visible, and their life will show people Christ. Their lives are lived for Christ's sake. Look at verses 10 and following. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's how the world treats ministers, and that's how the apostles were treated. And unfortunately, that's how many churches treat their own ministers too. And that is a tragedy. Who does all of this sound like? Who else blessed when persecuted? Who prayed for those that were persecuting him? Jesus did. True ministers act like Jesus as they wait for the return of the Lord. True ministers know that in that day, God's way will win. Just as they are not judged by you, the true minister of God is also ultimately not cared for by you. Although God would use you to do that and God expects that, of you. The true minister of God fulfills his mission to live a life that testifies to God no matter what happens to him in the world. 
He is a servant and steward. He is a spectacle to the world. And lastly, a spiritual father. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. The apostle is not writing to shame them. The goal is not shame, although they deserve it. Instead, the apostle views the Corinthian church in all of their dysfunction as his beloved children. And then the text takes on a more tender tone here. He intends to instruct them now, to warn them as beloved children. Verse 15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. What Paul is teaching is not limiting to the church in Corinth. He is teaching these same things everywhere. And Timothy, Paul's disciple and child in the Lord, will prove that to them. The apostle, the spiritual father in Jesus Christ through the gospel makes this appeal to his beloved children. Be imitators of me. Mimic me. Do as I do. That is the true appeal of a minister of God because he's not a minister of himself, but a minister of God, a servant of God pointing to God. His life will reflect the way and the will of God. Don't follow me, follow Jesus, but imitate me as my life does just that. But some people in the church were arrogant and they thought that Paul was all talk and that he wasn't going to actually come and visit and see and do something about it. They thought that they could get away with their sinful ways. Perhaps Paul will simply hide behind his words in this letter to no real effect. He's all talk. And Paul, as the servant of Christ and witness of Christ, gives an illustration of what Christ will one day do. Christ is not all talk. Christ will come. So Paul will do as Christ will do, and Paul will come. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is why liars are cowards. This is why the devil, the father of lies, is a coward. Because you can hide behind words, but you cannot hide behind power. You can hide behind words, but you cannot hide your works. Your works will show forth the power behind them. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power, not of just talk. If the word of the cross is true, the power of the cross is true too. 
If the word of the cross said Christ died for your sins, that is not mere talk. Christ died for your sins and atoned for them once for all. If the word of the cross says Christ was buried in the grave, that is not mere talk. Christ was buried in the grave, burying your sins, and as one person said, the grave of God's forgetfulness. The word of the cross says Christ did not stay dead and buried, but was raised in power. Then that is not mere talk. Christ was raised in power, and that means Christ is alive and watching everything that is happening. The overseer of all overseers, the Lord of his church. And because Jesus is alive, he will come again. And all will know it when he comes again. All will see him then. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is the gospel through which in Christ the apostle became a spiritual father that the church in Corinth did not have many of. And a good father never abandons his children. At times he disciplines them, but always he shows his children how they are to behave and act as a mature adult in Christ. If a minister is a minister of God at all, his talk is backed up by power because he does not speak of his own accord, but he speaks the word of God, and the word of God will do a work. It will not return to God void. Be sure of that. And that same word will hold the minister accountable in the judgment. A true minister of God is a servant of Christ and a steward, a spectacle, and a spiritual father. And here is the sum of it all. As the Corinthians are divided over who they say they follow, Paul comes and tells them what a true minister is and who they should follow. A true minister of God follows Christ, and they should too. Christ, who listened to this, became a suffering servant who stewards all things because he was given all things, who became a spectacle, despised and rejected by men, and who becomes to us the way to our heavenly Father, showing us our Father who will never, ever abandon us. When you look at a true minister, you should see Jesus in that minister, and you should see the word of the cross lived out. You should see the gospel of the kingdom. You should see the power behind the talk. And this leads to one final word of exhortation. Every one of us in Christ is a minister. This is the grace and the gift of the gospel. The Holy Spirit gifts each of us with a gift for ministry. Some of us are set apart as apostles, as evangelists, as pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4. Some of us are given other manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. All of us are ministers, servants, stewards, spectacles, and spiritual fathers and mothers as God 
has given us. And all of us humble ourselves and bow the knee and serve Christ. The apostle asks, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You decide, but know this, he is coming. For the Corinthians, Paul was coming for all of us. The Lord Jesus is coming. How would you like him to come? Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish his purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of his word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.